This is the second class for Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 today, so if you have your Bible, to turn there. I've got like six worksheets left, so if somebody needs one, there's hope. But other than that, um, that'll be it. Last week we did an introduction to the book of Romans. I'm not going to cover that again, but I will just say um, that's on YouTube if you want to see it. And we just talked about the book of Romans primarily, as far as I'm concerned, focuses on Paul's discussion between Jews and Gentiles and how they need to and can live in harmony in Christ because they're both justified by faith and not by law. And there's going to be some reoccurring things about how people are made right with God and how that works and what should be our response in light of that. So this is Paul in Romans is given a sort of doctrinal treatise on, hey, here's what the Christian faith is all about. But don't divorce it from the practical idea of Paul's dealing with some issues in the church at Rome because of some apparent uh, division between Jews and Gentiles. And that'll be apparent as you work your way through. Last week, we were in Romans 1, 1 through 7. We were in Romans 1, 1 through 7. And we got through these seven verses. That's not on the worksheet, but I'll just read Romans 1, 1 through 7. And then we'll get into verses 8 through 15. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those, to all those who are loved by God and called to be saints, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, first seven verses, Paul tells us who he is. He tells us where he gets his authority to write from. Remember, Paul had never been to Rome. He's going to mention that in chapter 1, 12 through 13. I longed to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift. But he tells us who gave him his authority is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 3 and 4, he talks about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He's the one who's from the seed of David, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. In verse 5, he gives one of the reasons why he wrote. It was for the obedience of the faith for all the nations. And then in verses 6 and 7, he says he's writing to the Christians in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. All right. Now Paul continues with this introduction, and in verses 8 through 15, he's going to say some things about his thanksgiving and his desire to see the Romans. We've seen some people come in late. I've got like six of these left, so if you want one, you can have one. Does anybody want one? He's going to share. All right, just making sure. David Palmer has his hand up. Somebody pass these. All right, thanks. All right, let's read verses 8 through 15, and then we'll talk about Paul's thanksgiving and desire to see the Romans. So first, his introduction, that's one through seven. Now notice verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. 
All right, first thing, verse 8, Paul says that he thanks God through Jesus Christ for who? For the Romans, why? What does he say in verse 8? Paul's thankful for the church at Rome. He'd never been there before because of what? what what's going on there that Paul's happy about? Their faith is proclaimed through the whole world. Faith proclaimed through the whole world. And if you fast forward, go to Romans 16. Romans 16, and you might make a cross-reference to this verse. Paul's um, excited about what's happening here. Romans 16 and verse 19, he's going to mention this again at the end. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul's thanking God for the Romans because of their faithfulness throughout the world. Question, do churches, do congregations have reputations? Yeah, and so congregations have reputations. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Depends on the reputation. All right, so how do congregations get a reputation? How do we get one? Our actions. Our actions, our behaviors, the things. And what would you say in summary should be the reputation of a congregation? What should our reputation be? Or what should be our goal for our congregational reputation? Look at Romans 1.8. Paul says their faith is proclaimed throughout all the world, right? Everybody's known about the Romans' faith, which is a big deal. They're at the heart of the empire, the largest city in the Roman Empire, a lot of pagan idolatries there. And Paul thanks God because their faith is proclaimed in all the world. What would be a good congregational reputation to have? Sometimes when people are traveling out of town, when I was on Facebook, I would see this, and you probably still see it. Somebody says, I'm going to Washington. I'm looking for a what congregation? Sound congregation. Nothing wrong with that request. Well, I think what people often mean, though, is I'm looking for a place where I can get a clean worship. I think that's what they really mean. They mean I'm looking for a place where I can go in, worship God, and have no problems, no surprises. And that's a part of what it means to be sound, for sure. What does a reputation look like for a congregation? What should we want ours to be? Solid preaching. Solid preaching is a part of that. Warm and welcoming. Warm and welcoming, for sure. That's important. Bible. Everything by the Bible. What if we take Paul's triad? He often talks about faith, hope, and love. Those three. That would be a good reputation, I think, for a congregation to have. Be known for faith, hope, and love. That covers the sound preaching. That covers the warm welcome. And there's also this hopeful expectation for things to come. When Paul saw this in churches throughout the New Testament, he would highlight it. He would say, hey, people have told me about you. Look at one more. Just one more. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Paul had never been to this church either, but he did write to them, and he had some things to say about the kind of congregation they were and things he heard about them. Colossians chapter 1, and notice verse 3 and verse 4. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now notice this in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel read the new testament letters and notice how paul praises that reputation in first thessalonians we're not going to go there right now for time's sake but first thessalonians chapter 1 8 through 10 paul says the word about the churches in thessalonica spread so rapidly that he silas and timothy when they got places to preach they went to these places paul says we don't have to say anything because of your faith is spreading everywhere. They almost put the apostles out of a job. They went to the synagogue to preach. They said, well, we already heard about Christianity because these Thessalonians have changed. They've turned from idols to the living and true God who raised their son from the dead. We should want a reputation like that. And that's what Paul is excited about for the Romans. Also in Romans chapter 1, 9, and 10, Paul says that he prays continually for the Romans. Notice verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, 
without ceasing. I make mention of you always in my prayers, asking that by somehow God's will, by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul prays for these Christians how often, according to verse number nine, without ceasing. If you've got a Bible with cross references, you probably already have these. If you don't, make your own. I'm going to give you some verses to just consider. First Corinthians chapter one and verse four, Paul says, I always pray for the Corinthians. Ephesians 1.16, he says, without ceasing, I make mention of you. Colossians 1, verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul is always writing to churches, and he's doing two things. Paul says, I'm praying for you all the time, and then he tells me. He says, I'm always praying, and then he lets them know. How could Paul do this, regularly pray for these Christians and keep this all together, and why did he do it? How could Paul keep track of all of these churches and regularly pray for them? And why do you think Paul made this his habit? I guess it would take a lot of uh, self-discipline for him to do it. He'd probably have to uh, have some sort of a schedule. A list of yeah. some sort, right? Paul had to be keeping track in some way for these churches. And Paul Paul tells him, I mention you every time I pray, he would do this for individuals. So Paul has some kind of ledger, something at least to remind him of who these churches were. And then the second question is, why did Paul do this? What was his motivation? His choice? Love. Love. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 28, Paul says he has anxiety for the churches. He's struggling. He's always concerned about churches. And so what Paul does is he prays for them regularly. Paul can't wait to get to Rome. He's heard about their faith. He's praying for them. And then he says he wants to get there so that he might be able to share the gospel and impart a spiritual gift. Notice verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Right? And so Paul says he wants to give them a spiritual gift, verse 12, so that we might be mutually encouraged. Question. In the first century, how were spiritual gifts imparted? How did people receive spiritual gifts? There are two ways, primarily. One is the laying on of hands. The other is, I don't know, what are you talking about? Okay, the first way that people receive spiritual gifts, if you were an apostle, you were baptized directly with the Holy Spirit. That's how it all starts. In Acts 2, 1 through 4, Jesus tells the apostles, you stay in Jerusalem until you're clothed or endued with power from on high. One way to receive a spiritual gift in the first century was to be an apostle, be among the twelve. At Paul 13. 13 people in the first century received miraculous ability because they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Everybody else after that, that had a various spiritual gift, whether it was prophecy or teaching or speaking in tongues, they received that gift by the what? Laying on of the apostles' hands. So let's just say Stephen wanted a spiritual gift and Paul laid hands on Stephen. Stephen can now speak in different languages. Question, what can Stephen do with that gift for other people? Can he transfer it to other people? No, he can't. And so that means miraculous abilities died with the apostles and with the last person that they laid their hands on in the first century. So the miraculous gifts don't continue. The church at Rome was started by somebody outside of Paul, but Paul says, I can't wait to get there so that I can impart some spiritual gift to you because nobody could receive the spiritual gifts unless an apostle laid their hands on them. Paul wants to get there and give them the spiritual things necessary for them to be able to do the work that they need to do. This also just lets us know there's nobody alive today that can do a miracle. Why not? This is an easy one. Why not? All the apostles are dead, right? And everybody they laid their hands on. So somebody says, well, I can do a miraculous gift. Who laid hands on you? It wasn't Peter or James or Paul or Matthias or any of them. And so without the apostles, you couldn't. But Paul says, 
I want to come and see you and give you a spiritual gift so that I might strengthen you and so that we might be mutually encouraged together. Paul was hoping to see them so that he could encourage them. But notice in verse 12, Paul says, you're going to encourage me. Why would a statement like this be important in the book of Romans? That Paul says we're going to be mutually encouraged together. What's the problem going on in the church at Rome? There's conflict between the Jews and Gentiles. Paul says, what's going to happen when I get there? Mutual encouragement. Paul stands to the church right off. We need each other. Paul as an apostle is going to give some spiritual gifts, but Paul also expects to receive something in return. Paul wants to help them, but he also wants to be helped himself. And it's just a reminder, we all need each other. First Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul says, Now we live if we stand fast, if you stand fast in the Lord. When Paul heard about other Christians that were strong in the faith, Paul wasn't just writing to them to encourage them. When Paul received good reports about other people's faith, he was encouraged. Paul had never been to Rome. Paul says, I can't wait to get there. As soon as I get there, I'm laying hands on folks so that they can receive gifts. But then Paul says, hey, we're going to be mutually encouraged together. You think Paul ever needed encouragement? You think Paul was ever discouraged and not wanting to do the things he knew he needed to do? And he needed other people to build him up, even people like the Christians in the church at Rome. And then Paul talks about his desire to go there and preach the gospel. In verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation. If you got the King James, and maybe the new king used the same word, I'm a debtor. Y'all have that? I'm a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise, as much as in me is. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you in Rome also. What does Paul mean here when he says, I'm a debtor or I'm under obligation, depending on your translation? What does Paul mean when he says that? Paul can't wait to see him. He's been praying for him, right? Praying for him nonstop. He's heard about their faith, verse 8 down through verse 10. Wants to get there to lay hands, share some spiritual gift, receive encouragement. But Paul says, oh yeah, there's one more thing. I can't wait to get to Rome because I'm a debtor or I'm under obligation. So what does Paul mean by he's a debtor and he's under obligation? What does that mean? I think God has shown him what he is supposed to do, the apostles of the Gentiles. And so the obligation is like he's obliged to God to the Gentiles. Um, it's kind of one of those things. I know it's not like it's not like in the sense like he could pay God back for his grace, but that's the work that God has for him. Well, yes, but read the verse again and notice Paul's not talking about his debt to God. He says, I'm under obligation or debt to who? Gentiles. So I'm wondering, what does Paul mean by he's a debtor or under obligation to Gentiles? And then he talks about different categories. How is Paul under obligation to them? He knows that they're all lost. He knows the gospel. He knows they're lost. And Bobby, because of that, he what? Jesus told him, go preach, go teach. Okay. So now here's the next part. Was this an apostolic obligation or debt? Meaning, was this just true about Paul or is it true for us too? Who's under obligation in this room? Who would you say is under obligation or a debtor? And to who? Who's under obligation? Show of hands, just to see. Somebody's like, Jesus paid it all out. Well, listen, we are under obligation. We are debtors. To who? To the world. Notice what Paul does. Look at this in verse, oh, I'm in verse 14. Paul breaks it down into groups, right? He says, Gentiles. He says, I'm a debtor to Greeks, barbarians, wise and unwise. So here we go. Paul says it's his responsibility to share the gospel. Is it wrong? And I know we want to make people, and I get it, evangelism can be scary. It can be frustrating. It can create anxiety in us. We can be fearful about sharing the faith. More about that in verse 16. But I want to know, is it healthy to view evangelism as a debt that we owe to other people? 
I mean, not just what we talk about sharing the good news, and we should be excited about doing it. That's true. But I think we better be careful about saying, well, we need to be excited about sharing the gospel, and we only share when we're excited. There's a part of evangelism that we do even when we don't feel like it because we're under obligation. Anybody ever obligated to go to work every day? You don't always feel like it. Now, if you get to do what you love, that's great. But even if you don't, you're under obligation. And there's a twofold aspect of evangelism where it is the good news. And for the joy that we have, we share the gospel. But even if that joy is temporarily suspended or removed, we still go out and share the gospel because of this word. Paul uses the term, I'm under obligation. I'm under debt. Doesn't really matter how I feel about doing it. Doesn't matter that it makes me uncomfortable. I get butterflies in my stomach. I'm under obligation. That's why I'm doing it. Paul says, I have to do this. Why? Because Jesus commissioned him. Who else is Jesus commissioned? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to who? Every creature. That's not going to be the same for everybody. I'm not telling you you've got to be the one sitting out doing a Bible study. I'm not telling you you even have to be the extrovert that hands somebody the card. There are various ways, and we're going to have a class after this quarter on evangelism and sharing the gospel. There are a lot of ways to do it, but we all have to do it. And one of the reasons why we have to do it is because we owe a debt. We're under obligation. Notice the groups Paul mentions. He says... The Greeks, that's a broad term for Gentiles in general. Barbarians was just any group in their world, anybody that didn't speak Greek. They viewed them as a barbarian. The Greeks thought they were special, and everybody who didn't speak Greek was a barbarian. So this isn't about anybody's behavior as much as it's about their social customs. He says, to the wise, those who consider themselves wise above others, and then to the unwise. Paul says, I'm under obligation. I owe them an opportunity to hear the gospel. Obligation to the one who died means we are obligated to those for whom Christ died. Once we realize we're obligated to the one who died, we're also in obligation to those for whom Christ died. That's everybody in the world. We owe them an opportunity. So Paul says no matter what category people find themselves in, he's ready to preach the gospel. When you look at verse 14 and 15, what does this tell you about Paul's evangelistic practices? What does this let you know? Paul says he owes all these people. So basically, Gentiles, but he's saying educated, uneducated, sophisticated, non-sophisticated, or unsophisticated people. What does this tell us about Paul's evangelistic practices? He didn't cherry pick to whom he went. Paul didn't cherry pick. Paul didn't discriminate. Paul didn't say, you know, you look like a good candidate for the gospel. You look like you might be religious. You might be interested. Paul says he owed who? Everybody. And that's how we ought to view it. Um, this is important because... Paul wasn't just concerned about Jews and Gentiles, but even categories within those groups, ethnicity. So yes, Jews and Gentiles broadly, but drilling down into the categories of the Gentiles, Paul's saying every Gentile, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, slave free. Neil and I were making a visit last week, and we were talking to somebody who's been recently baptized, fairly recently, and this person said in the visit, oh, um, I wish I was smarter, and then I would be able to understand the Bible better. I just wish I was smarter so that I could comprehend more scripture. And Neil cut this person off and said, you know, in the end, it's not about intelligence. Spirituality is not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of faith. He was right. We need to get that message out as much as we can. Christianity is not about all the smart people figuring it out. Christianity is not about, well, I put all of these pieces together. And if you're really smart, you can get a good handle on the Bible and you'll know a lot. In the end, Christianity is a matter of faith. Why does that matter? It matters because Christianity is for everybody. The illiterate, the non-studious, the non-intellectual, the intellectual person. If you don't know that, if I don't know that, it'll shape the way we evangelize. We'll approach people trying to figure out if we think they'll fit. You know how to figure out whether or not somebody fits into the gospel system? Just check if they're breathing. If they're breathing, they fit. Jesus died for them. 
they're an eligible candidate. And so Paul emphasizes this because he wants people to know how everybody, especially in a congregation that's struggling concerning how they go about interacting with each other. And then Paul says, as much as is in me, I'm eager. So that's the second part of verse 15. He's under obligation, but he's also eager. Paul wants to preach the gospel. He doesn't just have to do it. Here's a question. Paul says, as much as in me is, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. You see that in verse 15? Who is Paul talking about? Christians in Rome or non-Christians in Rome? What was that? Somebody says both. Yeah. So I guess we could understand why Paul would preach to non-Christians in Rome, right? Bobby mentioned they don't have the gospel. They're lost. So that makes sense. But what about Christians in Rome? Is it true that Christians still need to hear the gospel? It is. And Paul says, I'm eager to get there to preach the gospel. The gospel is not just for lost people out there. It's for saved people in here. By the way, what is the gospel? Summarize it. Three steps. The dead, the burial. You can understand why a lost person needs to hear that. But whenever there's a problem in the church, the answer is to preach the gospel. Because the death, burial, and resurrection, it recenters us and it reminds us. Christianity is about Jesus, not about us. So the Romans are having problems. Paul says, I can't wait to get them to preach the gospel. Well, they've kind of heard this one before. Both sides of this tape, right? Side A, they know the gospel, but it's not changing them. And when we're not changed by the gospel, it's time to revisit the basics. And so Paul says, I'm ready to get there. All right, how do we develop an eagerness to share the gospel? How do we turn our uneasiness into eagerness? Anybody ever been nervous about sharing the gospel? Okay. Everybody is on occasion. How do we transform that? How do we go from I'm, I'm uneasy, I'd rather not do this, to what Paul says in verse 15, I'm eager, I'm ready to share the gospel. What do we have to do? Study. Study? Okay, if we know some things, that'll help us. People say all the time, I can't share the gospel because somebody's probably going to ask me something that I would. No, no, no. Here's what I want to know. If that's our philosophy, when are we going to share the gospel? Because when are we going to know it all? I know that sounds sincere, but it eventually turns into a cloak to disguise our silence. Well, they're going to ask me something I don't know. That's going to be true the rest of your life. And so if we wait until we're omniscient, we're just to retire from evangelism, right? We're just not going to do it. Okay, so we need to know some things, but don't overcomplicate it. What else? What else will change our uneasiness into eagerness as we share the gospel? Prayer. Prayer for sure. Prayer about what? Prayer to the Holy Spirit to help Okay, God's going to help us through his spirit. God's going to help us. Prayer about the uneasiness. Tell God, I'm afraid. Was Paul ever afraid? Look at Ephesians 6. Look at Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. This is right after the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Paul says, praying always in the spirit. Somebody read that. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Nice and loud. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making all supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul says, pray for him that he might preach it boldly. He asked for the same prayer in Colossians 4, 2 and 4, and in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 1, Paul says, pray for me that I might be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men, because not everybody believes. I don't know if your picture of Paul is Paul going in synagogues and saying, all right, sit down, everybody, let me tell you something. But according to Paul, he was fearful, trembling, unimpressive in speech, unattractive, and yet eager. Because he often requests prayers from people who were illiterate, not as studious as he was, not as knowledgeable as him, but Paul was afraid, and so he prayed. Here's a few other things we can do. You want
want to change your own eagerness to eagerness to see the gospel as truly good news. If you really believe that this is the hope of the world, that people are lost without it, you won't be afraid. You'll be sympathetic. If you see the gospel as truly good news, that people can't be justified without it, that'll help. Number two, realize the state of those who are lost as being what it is. We know what it means for a person to be lost. It means that they're lost forever and a day they're lost. And if they die in that condition, they'll never know God in peace. They're not just morally good people who need a spike of religion. They're lost. And that's the reality. And the more we think about that, it'll motivate us to say something on the otherwise. When they're lost, they're not just in need of behavioral modification. They're eternally lost and salvation's only in Christ. Number three, know the gospel thoroughly enough to explain it. We just had some talk about that. Pray for eagerness. Intensify your love for people. Just start loving people. Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then remember the joy you had when you found the truth. Jesus told a parable about a man who found a treasure in the field. He sold everything he had and he went and he bought it and he purchased that field. Paul wanted to get there to preach in person, but until he did, the letter that we know is the book of Romans was going to do his preaching for him. So Paul introduces himself, 1, 1 through 7, 1, 8 through 15. Paul says, can't wait to see you. I'm thankful for you, but he wants to preach the gospel. And now Romans 1, 16 and 17, which a lot of people have said is the thesis of the book. It's the heart of what Paul wants to say for sure. But don't forget, Jews and Gentiles are at conflict. Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It's the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, Paul's going to talk about the power of the gospel and justification in these verses. He, he transitions. He can't wait to get there to preach the gospel. But now notice verse 16. Paul says he's unashamed of the gospel. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why would anybody be ashamed of the gospel? Why does Paul have to even say that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why would somebody be ashamed? Be afraid to be counted out as an outsider. Okay, maybe be afraid to be counted out as an outsider. What else? They're not living the gospel. Maybe not living it, Phil. They're not living like they should. Okay, somebody might be ashamed if they're not living it. They might be counted out by other people. What else? He's writing to the Romans, and um, they could be persecuted um, for just believing in That's right. Yeah, this philosophy may be viewed as inferior toward other things in the world. And so you don't really believe that a man died and got up again. You can't believe that, right? You don't really believe that there were miracles in the Bible. You're not a kid. You don't have to believe in these fairy tale stories, and a person might become ashamed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Every single one of us has to get over the temptation to be ashamed of being alive with Jesus Christ. And it creeps up on you at different times in different ways. Just when you think you've conquered this, you're in a situation around other people, and you just get the butterflies, and you start thinking, oh, I hope they don't ask me anything about the church or religion. Paul says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. And we got to get it out of our system. And Paul's going to tell us why this matters. We might be embarrassed for people to know that we're Christians, especially as our world goes in another direction. And maybe we take some stances that are countercultural, but Paul says he's not ashamed, and he would write to other people to not be ashamed. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm supposed to get through Romans chapter 1 today, so y'all got to start listening a lot faster than you can. All right, 2 Timothy 1, and three times in this chapter, Paul is going to talk about not being ashamed. His last letter, Paul ends his life writing to Timothy about 
no matter what happens, don't ever be ashamed. Look at, underline these unashamed so you'll see them the next time you go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed to be in the line with people. Don't ever be out in public with somebody else and you see another Christian and you think, oh no, here come the church people, right? Don't be ashamed, Paul says, of me or the testimony. Now, that's what he tells Timothy. Look at verse 12. Paul's an example. He says, I suffer like I do, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. Paul says, Timothy, don't you be ashamed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. And then in verse 16, he says, Onesiphorus was not ashamed. In verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus or Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. Three times, Paul says, Timothy, don't ever be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And you know I've been sought out by our brother, and he was not ashamed. Paul starts out with the Romans. He says, I can't wait to get there to preach the gospel, and I'm unashamed of it. It's the truth. It's the reality of salvation. And in verse 16, Paul says, it's God's power to save. So Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Paul is saying the gospel at its core, it's not a fictional lesson. It's not a fictional truth that we hope is true in the end. It's factual truth that we know will be true for eternity. You understand that? The gospel is not fictional truth that we hope works out for us in the end. It's factual truth that's true now and will be in eternity. What does that mean? Don't ever say to anybody, and sometimes people say this, well, look, I'm a Christian and I believe, and look, in the end, if, you know, Christianity is not true, then at least I lived a good life. There's no if in the end Christianity is not true. It is true. It is. It checks all the boxes. It's historically verifiable. The gospel is God's power to save. And because of that, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Think about all the ways that God could save, and God chose the gospel. Paul saying, if God's not ashamed to use it as his weapon, I'm not ashamed to be associated with it. And he wants the Romans to know this. The gospel is God's power into salvation to everyone who believes. What does salvation mean? What does he mean? It's the power of God unto salvation. What do we mean when we talk about salvation? What does Paul mean? It is the power of God unto salvation. What is salvation? What's another word? Give me a synonym for salvation. What's another word? Save, salvation, good, creative. Yeah, not using anything in the same word family, okay? What's another word for salvation? If somebody was at the beach and they were drowning and a lifeguard jumped in, we would say he did what? Rescue. Rescue. Yeah, this is a thing that runs throughout the Bible. God is a God of rescue or refuge or deliverance. It is the power of God unto rescue, salvation, refuge. From what, by the way? It's the power of God unto salvation from what? What are we saved from? Eternal death. Eternal death. Romans 5 and verse 9, Paul's going to say we're saved from wrath through him. So that's punishment, hell. That's the negative side of the gospel. We're saved from some things. What are we saved for or to? You've got to see both of these. The gospel saves us from hell, damnation, judgment, but it also saves us for some things and to some things. And what are those? Heaven, reward, yes. But what about right now? We've been saved to serve. The gospel is not just about how to get out of the hot place and go to heaven when it's all over. The gospel is about you've been saved to serve right now. 
And that's a part of why we're saved. It is the power of God for rescue. I don't have to worry about my sins anymore. So now I don't have to worry about thinking about Hiram's life so much. I can get out and serve somebody else because my eternal destiny is set. It's as set as it could be. The tomb's empty. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And I can pour my life into other people freely for his sake. Because you see, I'm rescued. I'm saved. And that's part of what the gospel is all about. It's not just about dying and going to heaven. That's important. Never apologize for that. We want to go. But what are we going to do in the meantime? And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And notice Paul says this for everybody. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in verse 17, and this is important. We know verse 16, but this matters. Paul says it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jews received the gospel first, and then it went to Gentile people. Remember, Paul's writing to these Christians, dealing with this, and he's saying the gospel is for both parties. Why? Look at verse 17. Verse 17 is key. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. First, Paul says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Somebody, not Andy, what is the righteousness of God? What is the righteousness of God? Paul says in the gospel, the righteousness is revealed. Ms. Campbell? He knows what's right. That's just who he is. That's his nature. Okay, so righteousness in the Bible sometimes talks about God doing what's right. In the gospel, we see God doing right. True? Okay, yes. Yeah. So in the gospel, God reveals. Look at verse 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everybody who believes. And then Paul says in 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So whatever it is, just think about it this way. The righteousness of God is in a box and God reveals it through the gospel. He takes the cover off and shows us, aha, here's what's in the box, the righteousness of God. What is that? It's partly about God being right, but what is the righteousness of God and why does it matter for us? What does it mean to be under the righteousness of God? What is Paul talking about? And the gospel shows us what that is. Kim? Warmer, we're getting close. <laughs> his holy character, his promises to us. Okay. The mystery of God is the plan of salvation, so he's revealed that plan, his righteousness, to save us. Yeah, this is huge. Verse 17 is important, and I don't want anybody to be confused about it. So let's just spend two seconds describing this, and then I'm going to talk about why this matters. Verse 17, Paul says, Therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. Paul is saying, in the gospel... God shows people how to be made right with him. That's the righteousness of God here. How do I get right with God? Paul says you're only going to find that out in the gospel. God's character, as we just talked about, Kim mentioned that. How we live, yeah, all of that matters. But first things first, how does a person get right with God? I'm on my way to separation from God. I've sinned, I've violated. Paul says if you open up this box, God's revealed it in the gospel. In the gospel, this is how a person gets right with God. In the end, everybody in the world, doesn't matter your religious beliefs, your background, where you're from, everybody's trying to be made right with God through one of two ways. There are only two ways. There's the righteousness of God, God's standard for how you get made right, and then there's the righteousness of man. Some system of our own contriving on how people get made right with God, those are the only two ways. Paul's saying in the gospel, God shows you how to be made right with him, and as we've already talked about, that's with Jesus. Look at verse 17 again. As it is written, the just will live by faith. That's the trust that they put in God. They'll live by their faithfulness, their trust. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, and he says, in the gospel, that's where we find the righteousness of God revealed. How did you get made right with God? <clears throat> if you answer this question when somebody says to you, how are you saved? Listen, if the first words out of your mouth are, I, 
you need to reevaluate the gospel. The first thing is always he. God made the first move. Then we responded to that. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The gospel is about what Jesus has done for us and how we respond to that. It's not, I heard the gospel, I believe. That matters. Our response to that matters. But the first thing out of our mouth when somebody says, how are you saved? We always start with what he's done. It's the grace that gets the wheels moving on the gospel chariot to bring us home to God. It's what he's done. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This matters because Paul's saying the only way to be made right with God is in the gospel. This means we don't know anybody who is right with God who hasn't done this. The gospel reveals it. You can't be made right with God without this. That's why evangelism matters. In the righteousness, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is uncovered. People find out how do they get on good terms with God in the gospel. So it's not a mystery. I wonder if this person's saved. I wonder if I'm in right standing with God. Well, the way you get made right with God is revealed in the gospel. And he said everybody who does that is right with him. And so we've got to do what he says. Why do Jews and Gentiles need to hear this message? Romans 6, 23. That's right. The wages of sin is death. But what if a Jewish person was thinking to themselves, you know, um, hey, I'm pretty special. I've got Abraham's blood in my veins. Paul would say, you get made right with God, not because of whose family you're in, but because of who you put your faith in. But what if the Gentiles think, well, we're better than you. God's kind of done with the Jews. And Paul would come to them and say, no, it doesn't matter. In the end, everybody's made right the very same way. You see, Jewish people in the first century didn't have a problem with Gentiles becoming Christians. Read the book of Acts. It's not about them becoming Christians. They just had to become Jews first. Hey, you can become a Christian, but you've got to be circumcised first and maybe keep the Sabbath and keep some other laws. And Paul comes along and he says, no, the only way people are made right with God is because they put their trust in Jesus and they're following him. That's what the gospel reveals. And every group needs to hear that because we don't have God's permission to add on our own stuff. You see, people don't have to do what we want them to do to be made right with God. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. What does the gospel say a person has to do to be right? And if they do that, they're right with God, no matter what we think. We don't get to set up our own standards and fix our own way. Paul saying Jews and Gentiles, you both need the same thing. And God lays that out for you. All right, Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul's going to start to make his case. Why do Jews and Gentiles need to hear this? Because they're at odds with each other. And they're starting to think one group is better than the other. And Paul's saying, hey, I want you to remember, you both were in the same bad shape, and you both needed Jesus Christ to come in and save you. He's going to start with the Gentiles, and while they, got, while they have a problem, then he's going to go on to the Jews. We might put it in parallel this way. It's not exactly the same, but to try to bring some contemporary relevance to it, it would be like this. It would be like talking to a person that wasn't raised in the church and then talking to somebody who was. And you can imagine maybe a person who was raised in the church, they know a lot of things, they know a lot of Bible. Paul would say, you need the gospel too. Or a person who wasn't brought up in the church, they might think, well, I've got a lot of zeal, a lot of passion. And Paul would say, well, so what? You need the gospel too. So Paul in Romans chapter 1, 2, and then chapter 3, he's going to talk to Jews and Gentiles and finally end in chapter 3 with, hey, everybody's sinned and fallen short. You all need the same thing. Look at Romans 1, 18. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so if you write in your Bible, you can underline or mark these two ideas of what's being revealed. In verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. That's what Paul's saying. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, but without it, we run into God's wrath. All right, so Paul says the Gentiles, he's going to talk mostly about the Gentiles until he gets to the end of chapter 1. And he says God's wrath is poured out. Why is God's wrath poured out according to Paul? Because 
of all what in verse 18? God's angry or his wrath gets poured out on all what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Why do people in the world live ungodly and unrighteous lives and just for a cheat? The answer is in verse 18. Why do people live ungodly and unrighteous lives according to Paul in verse 18? What does that mean? They suppress the truth. Any other translation have something else besides suppress the truth? They hold back the truth? Yes. What does the King James have? Hold back the truth? Yeah. Anybody else? We all have suppressed or hold down. Paul's saying people live the way they do. It's not because they don't know any better. They suppress the truth. They push it down. They don't want to hear what God has to say. Paul says they refuse. Look at verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So Paul is saying, hey, Gentile people are guilty of sin. You ever read the Old Testament and ever wonder to yourself, how can God be mad at the Gentiles? They didn't have the Old Testament law. They didn't have the law of Moses. Paul says they lived ungodly lives and God's wrath was poured out on them because they knew better. How could a person know better without the Bible? Well, according to Paul in verse 19, God made himself known to them. Verse 20, even though God's invisible, his divine attributes and divine nature have been clearly perceived in what? In verse 20. In the creation of the world. Now, if you wanted to talk to somebody about the gospel who doesn't believe in God and has never read the Bible, there are ways to get people to see that without ever opening up a page of the Bible. And that's what Paul's saying. People live the way they do. Somebody says, yeah, but how do we expect them to know any better because they don't have the Bible? Paul says, if you just look out in creation, you know there's a God. People just suppress the truth. Here are some proofs. I don't have time to go through all of these, but designing the universe. You don't need a Bible to tell you the universe is designed. You just need a breath of fresh air. Go look at the stars. Psalm 19. Paul talks about cause and effect, or the Hebrew writer does, in Hebrews 3 and 4. Every house is built by some man. He that built all things is God. If somebody never had a Bible, they could figure out, hey, this world is a grand effect. There must be a cause, an uncaused cause behind all of that, and that would be God. There are moral absolutes. Every one of us has a sense of oughtness about us, right and wrong. Where does that come from? Paul says you just look out in creation and you can see it. And then our appreciation for beauty, aesthetics. Why does the world have color? Why do we appreciate things? Well, because God's wired us that way. Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 is some people are probably still writing that. Maybe you weren't. Okay. Paul's point is people can see that God exists even without seeing God. You believe that? Sometimes a person says in a Bible class or something, well, what about the people who've never heard the gospel? Surely they're going to get a pass. According to this passage and others, they're not. Well, what about the man in the bush country in Africa? Paul says two things. One, we better be getting over there to teach them. But two, creation screams out loud. You have a creator and to seek him out and find their way to him. But people have suppressed that truth and they haven't acknowledged God for who he is and as a result of that, they turn to all kinds of things. Notice what they turn to. Paul mentions idolatry in verses 21 down through verse 23. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is just saying to every atheist in the world, you know better than that. Paul's saying they exchange the glory of God for these various things. The Gentiles need the gospel because this is how they live. They lived as if God didn't exist, but God left ample proof to show that he did. 
They changed God's glory for the glory like men. They made their own gods in verse 23. Images resembling mortal man, birds, and creeping things. So why do people need the gospel? Paul's going to deal with Jews and Gentiles, but right now he's dealing with the Gentile world. They suppress the truth about God. They live like they don't see the evidence. They create their own gods, and they make birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things their gods. And then Paul says God gives up on them. Notice verse 24, 26, and 28. Underline this phrase three times. Paul's going to say God gave them up, God gave them up, and then in verse 28, God gave them over. Over and over again, Paul is going to say God gave them up. And what does this mean? It means when you reject God, God eventually rejects you. Look at verse 24. They didn't want to acknowledge God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. They dishonored their own bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now notice verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. They were consumed with their passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. In verses 26 and 27, what is Paul talking about? The sin of what? Homosexuality. Homosexuality. Where does that come from according to Paul? Can you work backwards with Paul? Because we need this in our culture. Sometimes Christians, we misunderstand this. Paul says you've got people practicing homosexuality. You with me? Romans 1, 26 and 27. But Paul says the reason why, if you back up to 23 and 21, they just fired God. They've got their own gods now that give them permission to do whatever they want. And then if you get back up to 18 through 20, he's saying they've suppressed the truth about the knowledge of God. This means then we're not in a culture war with people that struggle with this sin. You get it? They're not our enemies that in the end, what they need to be reminded about is not anything new, but truths, old truths recently forgotten. They need to be reminded about the truth that they're suppressing, <coughs> that they're made in the image of God, that God created them for a special purpose, and they're living below their spiritual privileges. You get to homosexuality not because of politics, the government, the left. That's not how you get there. That wasn't there in the first century. Paul saying what happened was people knew God exists, they pressed the knowledge down. Once the knowledge was pressed down, we've got to serve something, we've got to worship something, we'll make our own gods. And whenever you make your own God, those gods always give you permission to do whatever you want. And what happens is they say you can do whatever. And it's always first, it starts with sexual perversion, but that's not all. Stay in Romans 1, and we're going to end with this. The bell's about to ring. <clears throat> But Paul says in verses 28 through 32, it's not just that sin. So that shouldn't be the only one we talk about. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who do. Paul says people do everything. Paul says people will do anything. The Gentile world started to do everything. That's why they need the gospel. So when you think about why we need to be unashamed and why we need to share the gospel, we'll talk about the Jews next week. But Paul starts with the Gentiles. They push down the knowledge about God, and as a result of that, they practice all kinds of unrighteousness. And the only thing that's going to fix this is the gospel. And that's why Paul can't wait to preach it. All right, thanks for a good play.